0: Last November, Jim Eugenio, one of the co-editors of The Assassinations, a compendium of Probe Magazine articles looking at the JFK, Martin Luther King, Bobby Kennedy, and Malcolm X assassinations, talked to KDVS's own Andy Jones. Uh, we have on today's program the other editor for that uh, very provocative and interesting book, Lisa Pease. Uh, here's what some distinguished uh, social commentators in America had to say about this book in Probe Magazine. From Jim Haugen, New York Times columnist and author of Spooks, The Haunting of America, as well as Secret Agenda, Watergate, Deep Throat, and the CIA, Jim Haugen said, Combative, insightful, and always surprising, Probe was for many years a barricade on the front lines of the culture war ignited by the Warren Commission's alarming cover-up of the John F. Kennedy assassination. Dr. Cyril Wecht, coroner of Allegheny County and author of Cause of Death and also a previous guest on this program, said the thorough research, objective journalism, and personal courage of Jim Eugenio and Lisa Pease in delving deeply into the background of these cases has helped to shed light and expose long-buried salient facts that official government agencies have deliberately chosen to ignore. And Robert Tannenbaum, former mayor of Beverly Hills and former assistant chief of homicide, New York District Attorney's Office, said, We are fortunate that independent scholars like Jim Eugenio and Lisa Pease have displayed a desire to pursue the truth. Hey there, Lisa. Yes, I am. Well, we're glad to finally get you on here. You were working for Howard Dean. Yes, I was. And I I was a little bit surprised when I heard that.
1: Yeah. I had been living and working in Seattle, and uh, I was so enamored of what this man had to say and the fact that somebody was standing up and really speaking truth to power. um, And I really thought he had a chance to win, and I wanted to be a part of it. So I kind of dropped my life, sold my belongings, drove to Vermont, and and uh, joined the Dean campaign. So, when I worked there for about six months.
0: Well, who doesn't well, dream of doing something like saying, you know, damn it, uh, you know, I think this is important, let's, let's go for it.
1: I wanted to do whatever I could to bring whatever truth he was saying, you know, to the public in whatever way I could.
0: Unlike other people joining the campaign, deciding that they were going to throw their lot in with Howard Dean's future, uh, you came with this background of having done a lot of research into, I guess you'd say, political skullduggery.
1: That's right. And um, and I had actually worked on a presidential campaign before. I'd worked on Jerry Brown's 1992 presidential run when he was going up against Clinton. Right. And uh, that kind of whetted my appetite. And it was, frankly, that campaign that opened my eyes to how badly the media treated things. I would go to an event, and there'd be 3,000 people there, and the media re- would report it as a handful of Brown supporters. And so that, that opened my eyes, and I thought, God, if the media is this wrong about something Like this, what else have they been wrong about? And that's when I started getting into the Kennedy assassination and the Sirhan case and the Martin Luther King case. And every time, you know, I picked up a stone, something rotten crawled out from underneath. I even talked to Clinton one time
0: (laughs) as a member of the Jerry Brown staff. Yeah,
1: exactly. He called. Somebody was trying to get them to talk to each other, and neither one wanted to talk to each other. And so one morning, you know, the surfy sweet thick Southern accent, you know, (laughs) called and wanted to speak. Jerry or wanted to return the call he thought Jerry was making to him. It was kind of confusing, but
2: uh-huh.
1: I could sure see why people found him charming. He was uh-huh. just syrupy sweet. Mm-hmm. So Jerry Brown, on the other hand, was nothing there was nothing syrupy or sweet about him but he was very intellectual, very funny. <laughs> he had a good sense of humor and, uh, and he was a little bit of a spoiled kid. Well, yep. you
0: know, I, if I may interject myself sure. in this, this, um, for a moment, I, Lisa, I, I was never really enamored with Jerry Brown when he was our governor or uh-huh. when he ran for senator. But uh, when he ran in 1992, I was really impressed by the fact that it appeared to me that he was doing what politicians do only when they're desperate. He was really running this guerrilla campaign and decided, you know, out of sheer desperation to begin telling the truth.
1: Right. (laughs) That's a really good way of putting it, Doug. That's exactly right. It's like when all else fails. (laughs) There's one way to get publicity, and that's just to tell the truth.
0: But he ran this remarkably successful campaign. He was taking only $100 donations. Right. And if my memory serves me correct, as one of the members of the campaign, had Jerry, in, 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 the, in the what was then a June primary, done well against Bill Clinton, Clinton would not have had sufficient uh, delegates to win the nomination outright. And with three weeks to go, Jerry Brown, the favorite son here in California, basically stopped getting covered by the media. That was um, my impression.
1: Oh, that's interesting. I, I was so enmeshed in the campaign, I didn't have time to follow the media at that standpoint. But you're probably right.
0: I'd pick up the Sacramento Bee, and it would be like, okay, where's the story about the upcoming primary? And there never was any.
1: It's interesting because Jerry Brown, you know, everybody talks about Governor Moonbeam and what a flake. But Jerry Brown actually won some primaries oh, yeah. that season. No, he did. He did know.
0: surprisingly well.
1: Right, contrasted with Howard Dean, who, as <laughs> wonderful as his message was and as you know fervent as his supporters were, only won his home state of Vermont. And thank God he won that.
0: <laughs> well, let, let's come forward then. Twelve years from Jerry Brown to Howard Dean, you've 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 moved out to Vermont. Right. Immersed you <laughs> yourself in the campaign, and what did you start seeing happening?
1: the campaign first at the washington level i was one of those people who joined meetup you know and that was my first kind of major introduction to the campaign and i went and attended a a house party where they were fundraising and we were on a conference call with howard dean and i was very impressed because you know even on the call you could tell he was extremely straightforward he was not politician. He didn't hedge his answers at all. He just said right out what he thought. And I thought, you know, I had two thoughts. I thought, wow, that's really cool. And two, he'll never get elected. (laughs) I mean, at that point, you know, (laughs) I mean, you know, these things often go together, Uh you know, And and it was early. I think it was like March of, you know, last year. And, and, and I remember talking to one of the women who ultimately became the Washington state director And I mentioned I'd worked for Jerry Brown. And she goes, oh, you worked for a spoiler candidate. And I had to laugh to myself because at that time, Howard Dean was the spoiler to John Kerry. Right. But she didn't see it that way. In her mind, Howard Dean was going to win. And that was kind of my first exposure of how Howard Dean played on people. I mean, Mm -hmm. people really believed in him. When they really got what he was saying and they listened and they did their homework or whatever, a lot of them not only came on board, they came on board in a big way so I actually saw him speak in two different cities, you know, with varying sized crowds. But I caught up with him in Milwaukee, where there were about 800 people. But it was a Green Bay Packers night, so actually that's a pretty good turnout, yeah, for that in Wisconsin. And uh, and then I made it all the way to New York City, uh, where there were again about 10,000 people in a park gathered to see him. And by then I had seen his speech maybe three or four times, and each time he was getting better and he was more passionate and. People were just on fire about this guy. And, you know, people were just so impressed by what he was willing to say. I mean, after 9-1-1, our country, you know, especially the Democrats, just kind of locked itself down. And no one was brave enough to challenge George Bush on anything. I well, mean, I'm, any-
0: I'm very disappointed that that Kerry Edwards, Gephardt, and Lieberman among the Democrats all basically gave Bush the power to go to war in Iraq, regardless of... Uh, how they were fudging the intelligence. And it was like, it was obvious to us on this program. We talked about it in the air openly many, many times in the ramp up to war, how the, how the books were being cooked, how things were being misrepresented. And it was only Dean, Clark, and Ksenich openly um, opposing this war.
1: That was the hardest problem I had with Kerry, because frankly, I assumed I would be supporting Kerry. He has a very decent record. He's yeah. done a lot of good things in the Senate. He's a good man. But I was so mad at him for his vote on the war, because right. it's not like this was an unknown quantity. Everybody knows the Bush family and how they operate. I mean, you know, Kerry basically said it off camera, you know, which the microphone's caught the other day. You know, it's the most dishonest lying group of people that's ever been in office.
0: No argument from me.
1: Yeah, I believe that to be true. And John Kerry believes it to be true. So then how can he justify his vote? knowing what he knew. And maybe, maybe at that time, you know, he was trying to give them the benefit of the doubt. You know, I'll give him a, a little leeway on that, but anybody who knows their history knows that this family has been deeply involved in remaking the world in an American businessman image, (laughs) you know, and when we go fight wars, it is always for our economic advantage, no matter what the excuse is that they put out in the press. Everybody knew what George Bush would do. They knew he would go to war. And to pretend they didn't, know is just dishonest, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, I told our news director here at the show, uh, Stephen Valentino and I were having a talk uh, shortly after the election, and I told him, I'm, I'm sure we'll be at war. Right. I'm sure that there will be an incident here six months from now, and we will soon be at war to legitimize the Bush presidency, and unfortunately, that turned out to be true. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, well, you're working for Howard Dean. Dean is a straight shooter. I mean, uh, as a, he, he just struck me as, he didn't, t- i, I I've had the same reaction you did. He was speaking like a physician, using logic and just saying, this is what I think is the case, and didn't strike me at all as, uh, as someone that's waffling and using political language. And he went to the web, and, and it had a sort of a, a tremendous success there.
1: It was partly the web, but I think the meetups were more of it, because people would attend these little gatherings at a local restaurant, you know, or a coffee house, or wherever the meetup was. It's a separate company. It had nothing to do with the campaign. This was something that started on its own, and then the Dean campaign jumped on top of it. But it was actually just started by some activists who said, hey, let's you know, go meet somewhere and talk about our Dean. And uh, I was just so amazed at the, the passion of the people when I first went, and one of the people. That King County Democrats leader basically in Seattle got up and talked about Howard Dean and the first thing he said is, I just want you all to know this guy is no liberal. And uh, that was a little bit of a surprise because I knew he was so anti-war and, Uh you know, he was pro-health care and, you know, and pro-woman's right to choose and, you know, things that we commonly, you know, think of as liberal. But then he started running down, you know, some of his other policies, his stand on capital punishment, his stance on guns. And it's fiscal conservatism. Uh And normally that would be kind of a turnoff for me, but in this year, you know, where I thought, you know, we're going to need somebody fairly conservative to beat Bush, I was thinking, wow, right on. You know, this is just great.
0: So as you're watching in September, the campaign appears to be snowballing.
1: Right. But one thing bothered me right from the start. I mean, right from the very start, I walked into the campaign It was all kids, I mean, it was all like 25 and under that were running the show, Mm -hmm. except for Joe Trippi, who was, you know, I think 47, And, and there were a couple of other older people in offices, but it was really obvious to me that the decisions were being made kind of at the as, uh, you know, the junior level. Yeah. And I was a little disappointed because I'd already had a similar experience with that. When I joined, you know, Jerry Brown, I expected that to be, you know, not your seasoned professional because he wasn't the front runner at that point And it was more of a message campaign. And, and yet I found that I met more political pros in the Jerry Brown campaign than I did in the Howard Dean campaign. And so mm. that scared me okay. right off the bat. And it also was very obvious no one was really running the office. There was no real chief of staff at the, you know, campaign headquarters. Now, surprisingly, you know, with that situation, you can't believe the passion, the dedication of the people working there. It, it quickly became a seven days a week, 12 hours a day job. See,
0: what because, sort of stuff were you doing?
1: Um, I, was, I was working with the databases for the states. Every state collects, believe it or not, <laughs> all your personal information, and it goes into what's called a voter file. I would help buy these files, and then set up some sort of online system where people could get access to these files. The people that needed to. So that's kind of what I did.
0: So when did you know something was up? When you, you, we talked before before this show a little bit about some of this and right. and about how these five two seven organizations have transformed politics, that they can basically come in, ostensibly not be connected up to the campaign, and go on the attack. Which uh, which apparently. Club for Growth famously did to Howard Dean uh, in Iowa with these with these attack ads.
1: Right, with great success. You know, they ran the ad, this, you know, those latte-drinking, New York Times reading, body-piercing, Hollywood-loving. Right, New York know, Times all the reading. the things that a yeah. farmer probably isn't. Right. Know? That was presented to us afterwards by Joe Trippi as kind of a murder-suicide. Uh, there was that ad, which was separate, and it turned out it was funded by Republicans, but there were other ads that were equally damaging. Gephardt really went after Dean on healthcare, which is pretty much the hardest thing you can go after Howard Dean on because he I has a so. stellar record. Right. He actually, the state of Vermont, everybody pretty much is covered by you know health insurance. You know, all kids are covered, all older people are covered, and if middle, you know, people in the middle aren't working, they can get coverage too. I mean, it's just phenomenal what he's done for healthcare in Vermont. So to attack him on that, you have to resort to lies i mean you have to resort to inaccuracy and that's essentially what gephardt did and trippy called it you know a murder suicide in the sense that gephardt attacking Uh dean anytime you attack your opponent your ratings are definitely going to go down because people don't like negative advertising what you're always betting on is that your opponent will go down further and that's usually what happens which is why you see so many attack ads they work they are effective right Um, but what no one counted on is that while gephardt attacked dean Dean was thinking so fast, he did have to attack Gephardt to kind of stabilize, you know, to speak back. But in doing so, then, the two of them were seen as very negative, whereas Kerry and Edwards had all these positive ads coming out, and they weren't part of the fray. And Iowans, you know, Uh, turned to them as the alternative to the same old bickering and dirty politics they had seen before. Right. And it's, you know, frankly, if the Gephardt and the Kerry campaigns had organized this together, they couldn't have planned it better. (laughs) And, and, you know, here's the other thing. Gephardt wasn't going to win anywhere but Iowa. He was hoping that he'd have a big win in Iowa and that people in other states would start to pay attention. But he had almost no support outside his own, you know, state of Missouri and Iowa. It would not surprise me to learn someday in the future that the DNC had gone to the Gephardt campaign and said, look, even if you win, you lose. You can't, you know, you're out of money. You're not going to make it out of Iowa.
0: It wouldn't surprise me either. Yeah.
1: So anyway, knowing, you know, I don't know if we'll ever really know if any kind of a deal was cut, but certainly what transpired between the Republican-funded ad going after Dean, Gephardt going after Dean, and Kerry and Edwards kind of doing their own thing. Also, Kerry got an enormous boost by a veteran who had been personally saved. His life had been saved. He was an Iowan? Right. And he caught up with the Kerry campaign just before Iowa. And that was just kind of a stroke of luck on their part, because, uh... He had tried to contact the campaign several times before, and no one would even talk to him. And that's often the case, because the person answering the phone is some kid, you know, who doesn't know necessarily the significance of a particular call. But this guy finally got to the right person. He goes, oh, my God, you know, come to Iowa and tell your story. And, And that made all the news, you know you know, reunion after, you know, 40 years or whatever of, you know, separation. Yeah. It was a, you know, it was a tearjerker. Who could but,
0: resist that? But did, didn't you feel that the way it was reported in Iowa, that Kerry did surprisingly well, but wasn't they, weren't they pretty much at that point with this whole scream and this big deal they made out of, you know, of a nothing? A man, you know, getting hoarse and yelling. Did, did you think the fix was in at that point?
1: You know, I don't want to get too conspiratorial in the sense that I haven't seen the evidence. You know, I have suspicions. But, you know, on the screen, i got to say, Dean did that to himself. And the reason the media played it over and over again is somebody, you know, so well described. Is it played to the media's image of, you know, they kept talking about him as the angry man. And, and you know, he was angry at George Bush, but he's not angry. He's not an angry man. He's actually right. a very pleasant, nice, funny man. Right. You know, very, you know, kind and, you know, good-hearted yeah. sort of not. He doesn't go ranting. I mean, it's just so not him.
0: Between Iowa and New Hampshire, they pretty much, they were, they were writing him off.
1: Yeah, well, they, they played that. I think Trippy counted, they played that 637 times, that screen, between Iowa and New Hampshire, which was a distance of just a week.
0: Wasn't that just Jerry Brown part two, from your perspective? I mean, they're just doing him in again.
1: Yeah, if it hadn't been that, it would have been something else. Well, exactly. I exactly. I think Dean handed them that on a silver platter. I think they would have worked harder to come up with something. But that, and the sad thing was, of course, you know, what, Dean's mistake was not giving a concession speech, but doing a pep rally instead. Yeah. But if, if the media had reported it accurately as a pep rally and not as a concession speech, people would have looked at it quite a bit differently.
0: Well, we compared it to Ed Muskie's supposed crying back in 1972, something that, you know, our, our college listeners are way before their time, but making oh, yeah. a big deal out of Ed Muskie supposedly being cry, a crybaby on television, you know. Oh, Dean's a nut on exactly. television. Yes. Dir- dirty tricks, dirty political tricks.
1: And there were other dirty political tricks, too. I mean, the night before the New Hampshire primary, um, I was told it was the Kerry campaign, but somebody hired a robocall company and made calls as if they were coming from Howard Dean. Robocalls are, you right. know, we get this computer message calling, Hi, right. you know, blah, blah, blah. Right. Um, But they pretended they were the Howard Dean campaign and they called people at four in the morning, which is, you know, the point being to annoy them, (laughs) to make them hate Dean because they lost their sleep.
0: I'm certain. I'm certain that succeeded.
1: And, uh, you know, these things happen. You know, I, I know somebody who works at a political firm who was approached. Can you send out email, you know, under, you know, and make it look like it's coming from our opponent? But say this. And somebody did that to Joe Trippi. Somebody created like a Yahoo Mail account, tried to make it look like it was from Joe Trippi, you know, dean for America, but it was really from a Yahoo account, saying something like "Gays aren't welcome on staff," you know. Which of course, you know, the message of the dean campaign did include equal rights for gay people, and so there were some people who saw that and actually thought it was real. You know, I found myself wasting time explaining to friends, "My God, just look at the email address. It's not a valid address." but these things happen. I mean, it is a dirty, dirty game.
0: I think we can look forward to one of the dirtiest campaigns in American history coming up this year.
1: I think the most important thing we can do for our country is to defeat George Bush. I feel like we've lost such standing in the world's eyes. They see us as a bully internationally. They see us as, you know, intervention for profit. And it's really important to put somebody in office who will not, you know, take us to war in those kind of situations. And I'm You know, quite certain if we have another four years of push, we won't recognize our government. I mean, they're basically trying to privatize government. They're trying to sell off government to businesses for profit. And if you had the chance of going to a place where there was no profit in the healthcare they gave you or a place where there was profit in the healthcare they gave you, I I don't understand the argument that for-profit is better. For-profit means you have to pay more for it because somebody wants to make a buck. Non-profit means you know you're doing it at cost. Just because a few nonprofits are run badly does not mean every nonprofit is run badly, and just because a few businesses are run well does not mean every business is run well. You know, it's just a, a crazy argument to me that privatization is better.
0: Anyone who lived with the California energy crisis would have to see that there seems to be a few a few flies in the ointment.
1: Exactly.
0: Well, investigative journalist and political uh, campaign staffer Lisa Peace, thank you so much for uh, coming and talking with us.
1: Oh, my pleasure, Doug. Take care.
0: All right.